This week, I am bringing you an interview with one of my fellow self-defense colleagues, Beverly Baker. Beverly lives in the Los Angeles metropolitan area, and she runs an amazing program called the Metropolitan Finishing School. Like me, she has a history in martial arts and transitioned from pure martial arts to real-world self-defense. And she now is out and about in the world teaching people what they can do to be safe in the environments that they live in. And she covers a ton about living in an urban environment. And as you can imagine, being in Los Angeles and near Hollywood, she sees all kinds of urban craziness. And she is extremely gifted in giving people the tools that they need to be aware, situationally aware, and to be able to observe what's going on around them looking at people's behavior, doing people watching, and learning how to recognize signs. She's also just a font of information when it comes to different tools and strategies for how you can use the environment to your advantage, and also how you can move through an urban environment far more safely. So I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. She's a lively, energetic, awesome woman, and I can't wait for you to meet her. So here we go. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the show that tackles the subject of women and violence head on and shines the light of what women need to know and do to be safe. Here's your host, fourth degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Gillicourt. Hello, I am Cynthia Jolicor, host of the Born to be a Badass podcast. And today my guest is a good friend of mine named Beverly Baker. As a student and observer of violence dynamics, Beverly began her education as a girl with wanderlust, undeterred by tales of the boogeyman. She has dodged peril and outwitted threats on the streets of major American cities, Europe, the former Eastern Bloc, and Southern Africa. She has developed and taught personal safety courses for LAPD's Community Police Academy, corporations, LA's Skid Row, women's shelters, colleges and universities, public school districts, and the general public for more than 20 years. Beverly holds a second-degree Don Black Belt in Cha Yon Ryu Martial Arts, and over the past 30 years has studied various martial arts, including traditional Asian arts, Krav Maga, and boxing. She currently competes in judo. Beverly is a volunteer escort at a healthcare clinic where she observes and physically manages the principles of conflict on the front lines where politics and religion collide. She holds a BA in sociology from the University of Texas at Austin and an MBA with a focus in digital media management. Welcome to the podcast, Beverly. Hi, Cynthia. Thank you. I am so excited to have you here. Yeah, me too. I'm glad to be here. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yes, we've got a lot of stuff to talk about. I know we do. So yes. I, am, I am ready to get to it. Before we get into the nitty gritty stuff, though, I like to do a little lightning round of questions just to get things flowing. Are yeah. you ready for that? Yeah, let's do it. All right. What is the current book you're reading? The current book I'm reading is a book called Roar. 
I, I don't know if I said, <laughs> I, can't, I don't think I can enunciate that well. Roar, R-O-A-R, Roar. Um, and it is by, I think her name is Dr. Stacy Sims. And it's all about um, eating for performance. And as I approach my 50s, it's like a different game. Um, and she talks about hormones and how like, you know, just how, how that affects uh, performance and, and physical and, and how eating all gets into that. So um, I'm just scratching the surface. It's kind of freaking me out. But I think it's a, a very, very good time as my body continues to evolve. <laughs> well, that sounds fascinating. Why do you think it's called Roar? Um, you know, so she, her background is, um, I have to look her up. I can't, I can't remember all the details, but she is a scientist and a professor. Um, but at the same time, she is also an athlete. And so, um, it's very woman focused in terms of, um, fueling the female body. We're not, how does she say it? Her tagline a lot is we're, we're not just small men. And so to me, what stands out to what she's about is like, being really specific with what's going on with your body, um, as, as a woman, you know, uh, when you've got, you know, monthly cycles, things like that and how that changes. So it's, it's about my sense again, again, I'm just getting started, but my sense is that it's all about just like really embracing where you are and like owning that and roaring. Oh, wow. That sounds like something I'm going to need to put on my list. Yeah, it's, it's a good one. Oh, that's great. Okay, what is your favorite dessert? Oh, my favorite dessert. Um, the first thing that pops into my head is this chocolate cake from a restaurant uh, here in LA called Musso and Frank. And it is just incredibly decadent and rich. Um, and generally, my husband and I will split it. Um, if I'm having a bad day, he doesn't get any. But that is <laughs> my favorite. <laughs> chocolate cake for the win. Yeah. Does it have icing? It does. And it has how many layers? It's got several layers. And yeah, you're making me hungry. I need to stop. (laughs) It's really good. Okay. Well, if this is not the same as the previous question, it might be. What is your number one self-care practice? Oh, lately, it has been taking Sundays off to do nothing that's related to work and my day job. It's related to nothing with studying about violence or teaching a class or anything like that. Um, I, you know, live and breathe this stuff. I also live and breathe in kind of some dicey areas throughout the, the city of Los Angeles. And so Sundays are my day to like it, put on movies and laugh, maybe do some tarot cards, get a petty, do some yoga. But it's all like like kind of putting all of the, these hard, dark things that I kind of play in through the rest of the week to kind of put that away. Because it's I've noticed lately it's just like it, it can be a dark it, it's just it's have it can have its effects. <laughs> and I've got to work at like balancing that out. Yeah, I can I can relate to that. I actually was having the conversation a little while ago about, you know, when you live kind of on the dark side like we do as self-defense instructors, we really do need to do something to get out of that and mitigate yeah. the effect of just being immersed in in such dangerous thoughts all the time and hearing people's stories and knowing what really goes on in the world. So I like yeah. I like that approach of just dedicating an entire day a week to recovery basically. Yeah. 
Okay, last question in the lightning round. What advice would you give to younger women or do you wish somebody had given you when you were starting out in your late teens, early 20s? Oh, love that question. Um, you know, I, and this is kind of what my whole approach to self-defense is about is, is to not be afraid of what, you know, we, we hear the news stories, we hear the boogeyman stories um, and, and, you know, to be alert, to be aware but to go for it anyway, you know, if, if, if things are holding you back because of something you heard, you know, secondhand about this place or this, you know, whatever, um, you know, take the time to investigate and learn. But, you know, don't buy into just this culture of fear we have. And, and I'll even lay some of this at the feet of, of uh, the self-defense industry, which I sometimes call the fear industrial complex. Um, my, my approach to things is like, I just want to be in the world and explore it. My favorite thing in the entire world is just be in a new city I've never been in and just walk around and check it out and, you know, meet new people, eat new foods. And, you know, for me, I've had to learn a lot because I love to do that. Um, but I, I don't regret a single second of it. Oh, well, I wish I'd have heard that when I was younger too, because like you, I, I love to travel, but you know, did so without any awareness or knowledge or guidelines. And yeah, I think that's, that's really powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay. Well, I would like to hear how you got started. Like what was your, your growing up world like, and what was, what was your family like when you were growing, growing up? Ah, okay. We're going way back here. Um, so, um, Oh, it's, I guess it really ties into what we were just saying. So uh, growing up, my family, I grew up in a suburb of Philadelphia. Um, I grew up in a not great neighborhood. There was projects at the end of the corner. Um, it was, you know, pretty dicey in terms of some race relations, things like that. Um, we were very working class and my family was also very religious. And so, um, there was a lot, I, I feel like I, I started to rebel with that spirit of wanting to explore pretty early on. Um, as I mentioned, like one of the things I've always wanted, like I just love doing for as long as I can remember is just like kind of getting out, walking around, exploring places. And at like 10, I'm like, I, I, I appreciated the architecture of my hometown because it was so beautiful, which I, I don't know. It's just, I kind of laugh at myself. It's kind of nerdy <laughs> to think of a child appreciating those things, but mm -hmm. it's just, just what I'm about. Um, so, you know, I came from pretty, you know, I was, I was the only, uh, only girl in the family of, uh, two older brothers, which I really appreciate them for, for toughening me up and, and kind of the rough housing we would do. Um, but there was also kind of this religious overlay, I feel like, you know, kind of, uh, you know, set expectations that, you know, as I looked ahead to my adult years, didn't really want to, uh, to follow those expectations. Um, but, uh, so that, that's kind of my early background, um, in, in terms of that, in terms of, you know, getting into, uh, self-defense, martial arts training, that kind of thing. Um, I, I have to say probably I was about 10 years old when I first learned what catcalling was. Um, I didn't know mm -hmm. what it was or what, what it meant or anything like that, but I was walking down the street with a good girlfriend of mine and she was same age as me. And we're, you know, I don't know, maybe 10 years old. And, um, this group of men in a car. And again, this was like a dicey neighborhood I was in. Um, but, but they, they came by and they're driving real slow. And I honestly can't even remember or know what they said to us, but I just remember feeling fear. 
and they kept on, kept on. And I just have this memory of this like physical sensation, like rolling up from my abdomen up through my throat. And I just turned my head kind of like in the exorcist, I guess. And I was like, fuck you. And which was really weird again. Like, I don't know where that came from because age like 10, <laughs> age 10, because we did not use that language in my home. Like, like my parents were super religious. Like my, if you say screw that, like to my mom, she doesn't even like the word screw. So like this was not in my family's vocabulary and I was pretty young. Um, so I, I was just talking about this with my husband the other day. I'm like, I don't know where that came from. Just some like innate self preservation or just complete indignation for how these grown men were, were talking to me and my friend. And, uh, they yell after I said that they yelled a few things and then they just sped off. And, um, that was scary, but I also feel like that was kind of like a, a marker for me and understanding, you know, uh, if you're going to move through the world and explore the world, you better have some skills and some, some backup plans. And, um, you know, I, I could, tell you more and more stories, but I think I feel like that was the beginning. Yeah. What a, what an empowering way to start off, you know, to have that reaction come out of you without you thinking about it and, and have it have an effect rather than just sort of suffering in silence and doing the, Oh, I wish they'd stop. I wish they'd go away. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. What an empowering thing for you, you know, to respond and to, uh, to see that actually have an effect in that dynamic at age 10. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I hadn't thought of it that way. I remember my, my little friend, my, my little friend, she's the same as me, but like she, she got really nervous when I said that. Um, and I, and I remember like that creating that, like a, a second guessing of myself and, you know, it worked out like, you know, they took off, but it's funny. I mean, I think that that's something we as women, sometimes when we do act powerfully or make a statement and then, you know, there, there's like that moment we step back and like, Oh, did I go too far or whatever? Um, and I can definitely see that, ex- that, um, that second guessing even at that time. But, you know, I, I look back on 10 year old me and high five girl. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You did well. Okay. Well, what was your, uh, what was your educational path like? Oh gosh, that is very complicated. Um, so my educational path, um, finished high school, didn't want to live in the same place my entire life. And so after high school, I got, and I started martial arts training, uh, I think it was my senior year in high school. And, and I got into that in Taekwondo. Um, and then I, my parents being very religious, wanted me to go to a, a fundamentalist Christian university, which I was not for, um, but I agreed to go for a semester. And I went and it was as horrible as I assumed it would be. And I'm sure that was a part of it, but it, you know, I did not like it. Um, so by about 18, 19, I was on my own, uh, having to kind of fend for myself in the world. Um, I moved to Austin, Texas, where I do my mom's side of the families from. This was in the early nineties and, um, wanted to go to UT and I took some like classes at the local community college, that kind of thing. Um, did not finish my degree cause I kept plucking away at it, plugging away at it. I finished my degree, uh, undergrad when I was 36. So I took the slow boat to that. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, but you know, just kind of plugged away and, and did, you know, community college for as long as I could. And then, um, you know, all through this was my martial arts training. That was kind of like the steady, thing in my life, 
you know, whether it was, you know, relationships with boyfriends or whatever path I was on educationally, it was like my training was always my um, go-to kind of like rock. Um, and it has continued to be that. Um, and then, so after I finished my undergrad, uh, a few years later, I was on the corporate path, decided to get my MBA. And then within the last few years, I'm still, you know, kind of doing that thing, but I feel like I'm coming back full circle because I, when I went back to undergrad, um, I had been running a martial arts school at the time. It was someone else's school, but I was the manager and I was teaching a lot of self-defense classes and bringing them into the community and working with the local school districts and doing a lot of stuff. And like, so self-defense was like a big part of my life. And then I kind of like scaled back when I went back to school, but now it's, it's kind of funny. It's like this, this path is spiraling, you know, back to where, where I have been, um, in a new way. It's, so that's, that's that part of it. Oh yeah. That's really cool. How old were you when you got into martial arts? Um, I was a senior in high school, so I want to say 17-ish. And was there anything in particular that prompted you to get started? Well, uh, yes. Um, so I, I had always done sports throughout school. Like I ran track, I played softball, I was on the field hockey team for a time. Um, but I had always been drawn to the martial arts because I had these older brothers who would watch these really cheesy Kung Fu movies <laughs> and I would watch them. And like, I was always amazed by what they could do with their bodies. Like just the, the ability to move in the way they did. It was, it was just beautiful to me. And, um, you know, I just never really had the opportunity, but I was always mesmerized by it. And then when I was 17, um, I was talking to someone who, uh, taught at a local Taekwondo school that had not been on my radar because it was, just, you know, I hadn't been actively looking, but I was always fascinated. Anyway, just in talking to him, that's, that was my first school and my first experience. And I did that my senior year. And then when I went off to that, um, not so fun college, I, I, that, that honestly got me through. I was so miserable and I hated it so much, but I would just go and work out. And I remember, like it was in the rural South and it was like super sexist. And I remember like the instructor, I'm just going to get be so on PC here. Um, but it, this, he was kind of pretty much rednecky. And I remember him being like, okay, girls, you can, you know, everybody do knuckle pushups and okay, girls, you can do them on your knees and you don't have to do your knuckles. And I just uh -huh. remember like that pissing me off so much <laughs> that it's like, oh, I'm going to do them like you're doing them and I'm going to do like 10 more. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was kind of my, um, you, you know, that was just kind of the beginning of my path is, is early with Taekwondo. And then I, uh, stayed with the Asian martial arts, um, was in a system called Cheyenne Roo for about 15 years. Um, uh, that was brought over, uh, or put together, I should say by a gentleman named Grandmaster Kim Su, who's based in Houston, Texas. So in, in Texas, it's a really big school. There's a lot of branch schools. There are in other places in the country and in the world, but it's really big there. And, you know, loved the training. I feel like, you know, it was more traditional. So we did a lot of forms. We did some sparring, but, you know, kind of in the more traditional karate school type, you know, which I, I wouldn't rec necessarily recommend for self-defense. But it, it put me so much in touch with like how my body works and body mechanics and things like that. And everywhere I've trained, it's always been, I've just loved the community of people that I've been with. And, and this was definitely no exception, just with some great people. And then when I kind of outgrew that, um, I got into, did some Krav Maga, 
did some boxing. Now I'm in judo. And I have to say, personally speaking, boxing and judo are my two favorites. Uh That's what I'm doing now. What is it that you like about those rather than the things you've done in the past? Um, so for, for judo, it's such a challenge. It's so hard to me. And I remember I've dabbled in it in the past and it's, it's, it's infighting. It's, um, it's, it's, it's the skill and the technique has to be so good. And it's, it's such a challenge and I just find it very hard. In the past, I didn't have the patience for it. Um, I, I know BJJ is all the rage and the big trend. I don't have the patience for that either. Um, and that's why I like boxing. I just want to throw some punches, <laughs> you know, throw the punches around, you know, give and take that kind of thing. Um, so I feel like, uh, I like judo. I love judo for the, the, the challenge and the patience as I get older, you know, I'm getting better at the patience thing. I'm not great at it, but, uh, it, it is that challenge boxing. Um, I just love hitting things and partners and, and, you know, it's, it, it's a two way street. I'm not just beating up on other people. Believe me, I'm, I'm getting it too, but it's just, it's just, just the rawness of it. I just really love. Yeah. Yeah. I can relate to that. I really love impact. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's cool. Well, at what point did you start to feel or notice or see a distinction between the martial arts that you were doing and self-defense? Uh, that's a good question. Um, Gosh, that's a really good question. I, I could point to a couple of ways. Um, I think most recently, like, I, the, the biggest kind of trigger for me, what's really gotten me on my path is, um, or the path I'm on now is about three or so years ago, I started, um, volunteering as a, a healthcare clinic escort. And, um, this is a, a completely volunteer position with a volunteer organization where uh, there's people outside who are some, they're protesting abortion. And so there's all kinds of healthcare at this, these clinics, but they're, they're kind of brought out because of how they feel about that. And so my job as an escort is to not engage with these folks. We're not there to argue. We're not there to have a conversation about it. Um, but what we're there to do is to just see the patients come in, just be a friendly face, get them to the door and, you know, just kind of keep things as calm and peaceful as possible. And and everything I did in that environment, Cynthia, flew in the face of everything I had ever known about, you know, for my own self-protection or things that I would, I would teach others, you know, the first of which is, you know, don't be in a situation like that, or, right. you know, how to create distance. And it's like, here I am, like, physically jostled up right next to someone. And so I have to say, like, I had this identity crisis in terms of like, I I am a self-defense instructor. What the hell am I doing in this environment? And so what it did was it forced me to go back. And I I had read um, Rory Miller's books before, you know, Conflict Communication and and Meditations on Violence are amazing. And Gavin DeBecker's Gift of Fear. I'd I'd read them Mm -hmm. before and I'd gotten so much value but now being in this environment, they like, um, they were essential for me. Like it was like, I just didn't have a choice anymore. Like I, I, that was the approach I had to take because I feel like, um, and this is my philosophy and my approach with how I teach now is, you know, we, we can train, train for the event, the violent event, and that's good. And that's important. But what we really need to be doing is like all that stuff up beforehand, because if you get to the violent event, it ain't going to be pretty. Like, it's just so not going to be pretty. And so with, with that new kind of point of view with being at the clinic, it just forced me to, to just have a whole new 
whole new approach to things. And I've learned so much. I don't publicly write or talk too much about what goes on at the clinic for safety reasons, but it's just taken my own understanding of conflict and violence and how to see it, how to spot it, how to mitigate it just to a whole other level that um, it's, it's a classroom for me and it's amazing. Wow. That's, that's a lot to adjust to, you know, in terms of your mindset and your previous experience. I'm wondering what the most challenging aspect of that is. Uh, Of being an escort, you mean? Yeah. Escort. Um, you know, I, I think the biggest challenge for me and also for a lot of folks who are escorts, regardless of background is letting things slide. And, you know, there, there's things that have been said, I would love to knock some teeth out. And, you know, it's just like, but that's not the, um, that's the end goal is to get the patients in the door and, and their peace of mind and their safety and their, you know, so if I escalate, if I counter protest, if I, you know, make a stink, then it's, you know, not, not accomplishing that goal. And, 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 you know, I'll tell you, it's, you know, the, the protesters will say and do some things that kind of defy logic and defy science. And so it's, you know, you want to roll your eyes or snicker or sneer, but, you know, again, that is a form of engagement and escalation. Right. And so it's really learning to just like, let that go. And, you know, at, for a time I, I hated the, the protesters. I hated them. And I just thought they were these terrible people. And, you know, not that I'm going to go and and hang out with any of them anytime soon, but like, there's just the value judgment of that is gone now. And it's, um, it's just, they're going to show up and do their thing. I'm going to show up and do my thing. Um, I've actually developed a rapport with some of them, which has been really helpful in, in, in certain situations, but, uh, it's, it, I think it's that gosh, I mean, this, I don't want to get all crazy political, but it's the world we live in right now. You know, like I believe a certain way, you believe another way, therefore I hate you and you're wrong. Right. And, you know, it's, it's just like that fuel, like there's no winning with that. And so this is a, a chance for me to kind of test my own internal patience. You know, even, even if I don't express how I may feel about somebody, it's, it's like I have to come to terms with that somehow. Otherwise, it's, uh, it's just going to eat you up. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like a little petri dish for you, you know, where yeah. you get to practice setting your ego aside and not taking things personally and yeah. in not feeling like you have to set the other person right, even though, yeah. you know, you have a large difference of opinion with them. And, yeah. you know, what you were also saying just about establishing rapport, I mean, that is such a great thing to be able to do with somebody that you might view as a threat or that you really are not in alignment with, but you need actually to get to safety through or near. Yeah. You're creating, you're finding a way to, to be safe, even though you're in an environment where there is a potential for violence to kick off. And I think, you know, a lot of people wouldn't even think about establishing rapport with those potential threats as being, something good to do. But as you know, and have found, it's it's actually a very useful tool for preventing problems yeah. and probably helps you deescalate situations too. Absolutely. You know, so our, our group, and I think the wisdom in our general policy of non-engagement is like so spot on, like we just don't engage. But then there are times where, um, 
you know, if, if, if you don't, if you act like they're not there, it actually makes the situation worse, you know, and it's, it's, you know, if someone, if a car is coming into the driveway fast and a protester is blocking it, it's like, oh, there's a car coming and, you know, you might want to watch out. And like, they, they're appreciative of that as opposed to, you know, make, forcing them to look out on their own kind of thing. And I, I, I honestly, I feel like, you know, with the rapport, it's, it's a balance, you know, cause I don't want to give anybody the wrong impression of anything, but we, we talk a lot about othering in, in the idea of, mm-hmm. of staying safe. And, um, you know, Rory Miller talks about this a good bit and, and I think others, but I, I, I've done a lot of work with Rory so I can, uh, attribute a lot of this to him, which is, um, you know, if I show up and I'm wearing a shirt that says, you know, uh, I, I have a t-shirt that I wear that when I teach self-defense, it's uh, the force is female. Now, if I show up wearing that at the clinic, well, then that just like makes me all the more uh, a bad guy in their eyes. Like, oh, I'm a feminist Nazi baby killer, that kind of, it just like feeds that narrative. And so it's like, you know what? I can go wear that shirt when I teach self-defense. How about if I just wear a plain green shirt today? (laughs) Right. You know, it's like, there's no need for that. So it's, it's kind of, you know, small things like that, that are seem small, um, but just kind of with that understanding of how, the dynamics work. It's it, it makes my life better. It makes the people around me, you know, the goal is to make their life better. They're never, you know, these people are never not going to feel the way they do. And, you know, so, so arguing with them or, or showing them a science book or something like that is just like not the approach to take. But otherwise, it's just to let them know that I'm not there to hate them. I'm just here to like, you know, be a friend to the patient. Right. Yeah, uh, Tony Blower really defines self-defense as the act of choosing safety when danger is imminent. And, you know, mm. everything that you're describing right there is the choices that you are making to not just keep yourself safe and keep the the client or the patient who's going into the clinic safe, but also to keep the protesters safe, you know, yeah. and to just create, you know, a small little alleyway, basically, a, a little passageway of safety through uh, an environment that could be very unsafe to all involved. Yeah. So it's it's great to hear you talking about those choices that you're making, because they're really mature and self-aware choices. And, you know, even recognizing that not engaging sometimes is not the right choice or not the best choice takes yeah. a certain amount of self-awareness to realize that. Yeah, I, I had a woman who uh, was a protester who wanted to apologize to me about something and that she felt she had done wrong to me. And when she came over to apologize, I, I ignored her and it just kind of like flared up a little bit more. And so I just turned to her. And I said, hey, we're good. Don't worry about it. And that just like immediately diffused the situation. So it's, you know, I'm all about non-engagement, you know, because I think a lot of times when we think of if we have like a blanket idea of non-engagement, it's just so we don't fuck things up and make it worse. Right. If you can, you know, (laughs) figure out a way to, you know, not make it worse and still, you know, like not be othered, not other the other person. That's what it's all about. So. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Thank you for that. To me, it feels like a, a little glimpse into a world that I have only just sort of seen from a distance, but not had any personal experience with. And, um, you know, I often wonder, like, what it's like to be a client trying to get through, you know, when there's a throng of protesters on the on the sidewalk. And I hadn't even thought about the fact that there are people who help to escort clients in and out. And, you know, never mind 
that they're not just dealing with the patient who's going in, but also having to navigate through all those other people and, and create that little container. So, yeah, you know, it's something I had not really even thought to ask a question about. So it's, yeah. it's great insight. Great, great to hear about that. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, if you're seeing healthcare of all kinds, I mean, we get people come in just to get a physical or whatever, you know what I mean? They're like, I'm they'll yell at the protester. I'm not here for an abortion. I just need my physical for my job, you know? Right. Um, but, you know, it, so there's all kinds of stuff going on, but the, I have to, you know, I've talked about this in a very kind of rational way and, and that's kind of a place I've come to, but I'm not always there. You know, it's the ones that really get me are the women who tell me they've had a miscarriage and then you hear them being yelled at being called a murderer, that kind of thing. Even now, it's just, it's, it still kind of pushes my buttons. Um, that, that's just the human in me. But I, I feel like, you know, if I can just kind of be some kind of buffer, I mean, there's one woman, and I, I've written an article about it, um, who had had a miscarriage and was just, the doors weren't open yet. And so she had to really sit and listen to what was being said to her. I think the upside was she was so distraught about her own personal stuff, she almost didn't even hear them, but I could hear them. And that was a, that was a, a very clarifying moment for me of like, how am I going to be here? And, and, you know, why am I here? But, uh, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely a show, man. Yeah. Wow. Maybe we can put a link to that article in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. I can do that. Great. The most common complaint that I hear from women when I talk to them about personal safety is that they often feel unsafe and they really resent the need to be constantly vigilant. They don't know how to deal with uncomfortable situations, and they believe that they are too small or too weak to defend themselves physically if they have to. What they're really after is the freedom to walk around and to feel safe, and to have more confidence in their ability to get away if something happens. That is why I created the Born to be a Badass Prep School, the self-protection course that teaches you everything that you should have been taught about how to be safe in the world when you were growing up, but probably weren't. The Prep School is an online program where you will change your mindset and learn how to make the most of your innate abilities to protect yourself. You'll learn what to look for and how to recognize potential dangers, what to do in bad situations, and how to manage fear. You'll discover how to tap into your body's natural protective skills if you have to fight, and how to deal with the aftermath of an incident. Not only is this a virtual program that you can do from anywhere at any time, you get lifetime access to the content, access to my private support group, and a gift certificate to use towards one of my live hands-on training events that builds upon the prep school curriculum. So if you're ready to take your personal safety into your own hands and to develop self-confidence and be able to go where you want to go and do what you want to do with a sense of freedom, get yourself over to my website, CynthiaJolaker.com slash prep school to learn more and to register for an upcoming session. As a listener to the Born to be a Badass podcast, you will save more than 60% on your enrollment by entering the code podcast when you register. Well, um, you know, you've explained kind of what your path through martial arts was and, and talked a little bit about this, this uh, volunteer work as being an escort. I'm curious, 
what prompted you to start teaching self-defense? Um, I like my reasons for getting in. It's like not glamorous. Um, it's just being in the, um, in this, in the martial arts world, it was just kind of a next step. I think in a way expected of a lot of women, if you, you know, kind of rise through the ranks and and that kind of thing, it was, it's just kind of expected for better or for worse. And, and I did, like I said, manage a school for a time. And so it just seemed to be like a very important component of, of, of curriculum, just, just from a business point of view. And so personally, I've always just done martial arts because it's fun and enjoyable to me. The self-defense kind of just really came later. So it was just, I guess, for better or worse, like just expected. And I, I've stuck with it because it's an enjoyable and I, it's, it's, it's very different for me in working with a lot of folks. And, and I don't know if you can relate to this, but it's like, I, I love like the physical movements and I love all that. It's very fun. Yeah. And so for me, it's like, I have to kind of like, remember, like not everybody feels that way and not everybody enjoys this. And, and that's one reason that led me to, to develop the asphalt anthropology class. Um, cause it's not physical at all. It's like, here's how bad guys operate. Here's, you know, things, patterns that they do that kind of thing. But for me, in terms of teaching self-defense, it's just something I kind of just fell into just by being in that world. And it's, it, it's, it has just gotten so rewarding, you know, working with, you know, people with disabilities or people with kids or, or, or kids rather, or, you know, older people. Like I just kind of love that challenge of working with people who are, you know, a quote unquote non-traditional martial arts or self-defense student. Um, cause I feel like it makes, you know, them more safe, but it also makes me smarter and just better at what I do and kind of thinking about it through, through those, those eyes. Right. So what are some of the most common misconceptions or false beliefs about personal safety and self-defense that you encounter? Um, you know, I want to say the first one off the top of my head is that the idea that when you, when you say self-defense and if you Google it uh, and do an image search, it's like the first thing you see, it's like, you know, big, strong, athletic people like pounding on each other or, you know, throw hands around each other's throats. And I, I keep asking myself, I'm like, how did, how did the, uh, how did the physical paradigm become like the, or the physical world become the dominant paradigm in self-defense? Like mm-hmm. for me, it's like, you know, the ability to be aware, the ability to adapt, the ability to improvise, um, the ability to be mindfulness. So it's, it's, it's a question I, I always like to ask myself and other people. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are, but it's like, you know, if self-defense wasn't default to physical, like what would it be? And I think, you know, it, it has defaulted. And, and I, I think to, I think there's definitely benefits to that, but I also see the disadvantages of that. Um, I, I had a student come up to me recently who is an older lady and uh, probably in her late 60s and very tiny lady. I'm 5'4", and she came up to like, you know, below my shoulder, so very small. And she was asking me how to get people to stop bothering her on the train. And, you know, when I asked her, started asking her questions, she was saying, well you know, it, it, she just starts explaining her environment. And, and it was, she, I was so impressed with how aware she is. Like she, like nothing gets by her. And so I was asking her more detail. I'm like, well, how are people bothering you? Like what's happening? Well, what was happening is that she was like calling people on it and telling them to stop and telling them, you know, bossing people around basically in public transportation. And she was chalking it up to, she, they're pu- pushing her around cause she's small and elderly. And it's like, you know, that makes you a, 
an easier, softer target. But, you know, if you, if you kind of don't jump into a social conflict monkey dance with them, that's probably going to take you a lot further. And the reason I tell this story in, in relation to this is because she literally, one of the things she asked me for was she wanted me to make her look more mean and to have like a mean looking face. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I I was kind of like, at first I thought she was kidding with the question, but the more I probed, it was like, she was serious. Like she, like, here's this tiny physical woman who wanted to walk around looking like Rambo. And it's like, you have, ma'am, you have so many skills, like use those skills. Like, like, why are you defaulting to the Rambo approach? And, you know, I think she's, she's kind of an extreme example with her age and her size, but you know, how many, how many women do that? And, and, and I know I, I've been there. It's, it's not to say this is just other people. It's like, you know, we learn these physical hard skills and then we think the answer to every problem is that. And, you know, I think we've seen in the Me Too movement, there's a lot of gray area women especially have to tolerate or have had to tolerate and have had to deal with one way or another. And, like you're certainly not going to be in these gray area situations and then just suddenly like kick somebody in the balls and gouge their eyes out. You know, it's, it's, you know, that's, we've got to have some other skills and I see the industry is changing and headed in that direction. But I think for the mainstream general public, when you say self-defense, it's like, ah, I'm going to like put an elbow in somebody's neck. And that's just a small, tiny uh, picture or a part of, of that picture. Right. So that's my long winded answer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I encounter that same belief too. And it's honestly, it's one of the things that I find keeps women from even wanting to come to a course because they yep. think that that's what it is. And so yep. the big challenge for me is to communicate, well, yes, the physical element is really important and it's not the only part. In fact, there's so much more you can do that will help you hopefully avoid having to engage physically. You know, right. let's, let's give you those skills and those tools too. And, yeah. you know, get comfortable with the physical part in case you have to use it. But yeah, there's so much more you can do. You just don't know that there is. And yeah. And I, th- I think that's, you, you hit the nail on the head. That's, I think that's the disservice that we do to women um, is by, by having this cliche or this stereotype of, oh, it's physical. Well, well, that's going to alienate so many people. Or what, you know, this woman who I was talking with, like, I don't know her health history, but like, what if she has osteoporosis and like has real brittle bones, you know, like, then we need to come up with other solutions for her or, you know, like start carrying a cane or something. But, right, you know, I think there's, there's, there's a lot of kind of cookie cutter answers out there that don't take into the account, you know, people's size, age, physical ability, um, where they live, the context of, of all kinds of stuff that I think this kind of one size fits all physical approach doesn't take into account. And I, and I just have to say, that's not at all discounting the physical approach. Cause, cause I came into it because I love the physical approach. Like it, to me, it's just fun, but I, I have to remind myself, or I remind myself, it's like, to me, the thing that's fun is so not fun for some people. And it's, um, you know, for them, you know, dancing's fun or, you know, being an artist is fun. And like, are they going to, you know, I, I know I'm not going to dedicate the time it takes to be a great piano player that I, sh- you know, if I want to be a great piano player. So, you know, a woman shouldn't have to dedicate all this time to feel safe just to just to become up with this like whole warrior ethos kind of thing. 
Yeah, that's that's great. And you know what it's bringing to mind to me for me is the flip side, which is the women who assume that self-defense is all physical often then follow that with, and I'm too small and I'm too weak. Mm. You know, the bad guy is going to be bigger and stronger than me. So there's nothing I'm going to be able to do. So, you know, I can't even learn the physical part. You know, I'm already at such a disadvantage. And, And for me, that's a, that's a huge mindset shift for women to get through and recognize that yes, you know, physical part is important and yes, bad guys may be bigger and stronger and you may be smaller and weaker and it doesn't matter because there are things you can learn how to do and ways you can use your body that will definitely have an impact. And, you know, I'm not saying you're going to triumph every time, but being smaller and less strong is not an automatic sentence that says that your only option is to comply and to be victimized. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's our job, right. As, as self-defense, physical self-defense teachers is to teach them, you know, targeting power generation, you know, timing that, that those kind of things. So, um, you know, that, that, that's on, on us, but yeah, I I feel your pain. It's like, sometimes it's hard even to get them in the room (laughs) Yeah, yeah. if that's their mindset. And I, I think that's, that's all of our, that's like, for as long as I can remember and, and both male and female teachers, like that's the big struggle, right? Like how do you get someone in the room who probably needs it the most? Right. And, um, you know, that's the, the class that I've put together. It's, it, it, it's, it tries to be an answer to that. And, and it's, you know, so far I've, I've gotten a really nice diverse group of people who I feel like, you know, have told me they haven't taken self-defense classes or, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, that, that makes me, you know, really happy that I, I feel like I'm hitting that target market. Um, cause I, I advertise it. It's not physical. It's all like pre, pre attack, pre violent stuff, like, and, and learn how to kind of just like own the space you're in and by reading it and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, just keep on keeping on with that, I guess. And that's the asphalt anthropology class that you teach. Yeah. Asphalt anthropology. Yeah. That's a great name. One. Yeah. <laughs> great name. <laughs> Yeah, I'm an anthropology nerd. And so I just feel like it all kind of fits in with like understanding human beings and how they work. And uh, the class is geared specifically like in the for the urban environment, the principles like, as you know, it's like human, like human nature principles apply no matter where you are. But you know, the context of this class is like the urban environment. So we, we kind of talk about physical areas and specific areas and like how to navigate them. But once you kind of get those ideas down, you can you can take them to wherever. But yeah, my target audience is mainly kind of the the urban dweller and, you know, navigating that world. Right. But you also work with women on Skid Row, right? Yeah. So that's um, that's very urban, very, very citified there. So kind of my my audience is very two sides of the same coin. One is, you know, very affluent professionals. Um, and then the other side are people who live in women who live in Skid Row, and man, that place is a show. I'll tell you what; it's—I I don't even know how to describe it. Um, but it's the ninety percent of the women who are living in that environment have been sexually assaulted. So, the the I've worked with women who are currently living on the streets. Right now, I'm running a program for women who are living in a mission in a residential program, getting off the streets, getting over addiction, you know, some of them are aging out of foster care. So it's a wide variety. 
But these are some of the most vulnerable women I have ever met in my entire life. When I first started there, I thought, oh man, these, these are going to be tough, grizzled women who are going to just teach me everything. And, you know, there's, there's definitely the truth to that. But for the most part, they just, these are very vulnerable women whose lives have been greatly affected by trauma. And, you know, I, I've worked with women in, in, in shelters before, but, um, the, the context that, that Skid Row is, it's like, it's, it's run by gangs. And if you pitch your tent, in that environment, that means you're paying rent to a gang member. And that means you're, you know, holding money, holding drugs, running drugs, you're prostituting women out of your tent. It's just, it's like a whole sociology that is, is like from Blade Runner or something. It's just crazy. So it's, it's, it's a very vulnerable population and high at risk. And they just, they just have my heart. It's quite an amazing experience working there. Oh, it must be. What kinds of things can you do to help them? Like, what do you teach them when you work with them? So the class um, I've developed for them, um, it's it's got three components. The first component is physical self-defense. It's like kicking, punching. We focus on like uh, power generation, targeting, you know, kind of all those nuts and bolts of, of self-defense, um, you know, getting out of uh, grabs and being pinned against walls, that kind of thing. Um, we also have a, an element of class where it's scenario based training. So it's like, okay, you tell me what, uh, what, um, you know, without, without digging too much, but like, what are some scenarios you want to work on? And a lot of it is like, oh, I'm sitting at the bus stop or, you know, walking down the street, that kind of thing. So it's all the physical. And then we talk about street skills. And so these are things like understanding how, you know, you're being, when you're being targeted. So if the guy, you know, how they're approaching you. If they're, it's a big empty bus stop and they come and sit right next to you, you know, you're definitely being targeted if you get up and move and they follow you. So it's, it's kind of understanding that dynamic, but then it's also uncovering, um, and this is stuff women, no matter what zip code they're in, it's like, is it okay if I get up and move? And, you know, if the guy pursues me, like, am I being a bitch and what can I say? And, and, and like coming up with kind of ready-made answers if someone's asking you, you know, kind of doing the Gavin De Becker, what he talks about the interview, you know, kind of prepping for all of that pre-violence, pre-event stuff. So we, we spend a good chunk of time on that. I have worksheets for them that we go over in class and they can take home and just kind of do some reflections. And, you know, the idea of conflict itself, we talk about in the first class. And, you know, if, if, if you are afraid of conflict, that can actually lead to more conflict if you're just kind of like letting people walk all over you. Mm-hmm. So like what's the balance? And so there's a lot of kind of self-reflection there. And then the third component is a fitness component, which I work with one of my friends and personal trainers, Christina Chan, shout out to Christina. She's amazing. But she, so if, if the, um, if the, the, the theme for the physical one night is power generation, she then comes in the following week with a, a fitness routine that is all about generating power and turning those hips and getting, you know, the upper body turn and that kind of thing. And it's, it's fun because it's, it's, I try to make both classes very playful and, 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 and light, but you know, in self-defense, it's just going to get heavy sometimes emotionally. But with Christina's class, it's, it's, people can participate in a way and still develop those skills without it being like, Oh, I think about somebody like throwing a punch at me or that kind of thing. So a quick example that, that happens and why I love having this fitness class is 
you know, this one woman who I work with, who has always been kind of shy about her punches. We were holding plank one day and we were holding it for a good 30, 40 seconds. And the room really impressed me. I was wowed by what they were able to do. And when they, they finished holding the plank, this one lady, she's like, wow, I didn't know how heavy I was. And not like in that normal, like women, what we do, like, oh, I'm so heavy. And we beat ourselves up. It wasn't that at all. It was like, she didn't know like what was behind that. You know, she's holding herself on her, on her palms. And it's like, yeah, I'm going to say her name. I don't want to say her name, but it's like, yeah, if you put that, a punt, put that body weight behind a punch, look what you can do. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of like aha moment and light bulb moment for her and the rest of the group that just by holding a simple plank, it like ties into, into the rest of it. So as, as, as much as we were talking earlier about, you know, physical is not everything. It's just like the physical, you know, once you kind of get that sense of what your body can do, it changes everything. Yeah, that's where the sort of empowerment transformation happens, I think, for a lot of women is realizing what they actually are capable of physically. Yeah. Because, you know, somehow changing the mindset and giving yourself permission to take action and those kinds of things, it's not such a big stretch. But if you've always viewed yourself as not being particularly athletic or strong or something, and then you do something like that and surprise yourself, that's where the big breakthrough happens and that often happens in my courses when we do the scenarios with the bad guys in gear. You know, mm-hmm. they, they wear the high gear suits that Tony Blower developed. And, um, you know, a lot of women who come in at the beginning and they're like, I've never hit anybody before or hit anything before. And, you know, when they first encounter it, they're kind of tapping and it's like, okay, that's not much impact. So you can step it up. And we do, you know, threshold drills so they get comfortable. And then yeah. when they do the scenario, and they get to watch it later and, you know, there's like the elbow nails the guy in the head and, you know, <laughs> they shin kick him and take one leg out and, you know, they're like, wow, I feel like oh, such a badass. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and it's like, you are. And now you know you are. In yeah. fact, that's, that's why my stuff is the born to be a badass. You know, those are my programs and that's this podcast is because that's that's always been the big aha moment for women in the programs is just realizing that that's really what's up for them. Yeah. And it's inherent in them. I love love what you you know, it's you're born to be a badass. It's inherent in you. It's like all this crap that gets in the way. Yeah. And that's and that's what I call the unfinishing class. This is the nine week class that I'm doing right now at the mission on Skid Row. And I want to bring it to the public. But it's all about it's like the physical stuff. But we delve into that psychological stuff, like all that crap that gets put on you and like looking for permission and, you know, oh, the phrase, I don't do conflict. It's like if if you if you've ever said that, like, I want to get my hands on you and we're going to like have a class and you will not say that by the end of the class. And I don't mean that like, oh, you're going to walk around and be a jerk, but it's like you won't you'll feel like, oh, I can I can step up and and not necessarily be in conflict like a bad thing, but just like be in the moment and like work something through with somebody. This could be just like over a, you know, a family argument of where we're going to move the couch to. It doesn't have to be like this big thing. But um, I just, I see this a lot, especially in the business world with women who say, oh, I don't do conflict or I'm afraid uh, of, of, of conflict. And I, and I see how it shows up in their business life. It's like things don't get done. Boundaries get crossed. Clients you know, step over boundaries. And and it's like, that's just bad for business. Like you're hurting yourself. And so I I, I see Cynthia, like all of this is tied together. Like it doesn't have to be about that, 
you know, boogeyman jumping out at you, you know, it, it's like, how are you like in your everyday life? And you and I've talked about this hashtag everyday self-defense. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, if you stand up for yourself when your client or your coworker, you know, it doesn't have to be like the biggest thing, but it's just like that. Where would you like step back? Where would you kind of cower a little bit? And, you know, and sometimes like we talked about at the clinic, like just doesn't, you have to engage every time, but like, where are you like looking for, like, what's the cost if I don't? And what's the cost if I do? And like, just mindfully weighing that. Oh, great insight. Well, before we wrap it up, I would like to hear what you believe are the must-know concepts or tools that women need to have to be safer. Yeah. um, One, well, you know, we've talked about it through through your programming. It's it's there are things that are inherent to you. One thing that people always like to when they come to my classes, they want the formula for what do I do when what what do I do when this thing happens. And my answer to them is, you know, you're learning the notes here. You're learning how to play the music, but you got to go out there and play jazz because everything depends on you. It depends on your environment, depends on the other person. And so I guess this, this, this isn't so much good news. Uh, you know, it's like, you've got to figure it out for yourself, but, but you, you have it in you to figure it out. So there's that one big question I get frequently. Um, an example of this is, you know, if I feel like I'm being targeted by someone, do, do I look them in the eye, you know, or do, or do I not look them in the eye? And the answer is, you know, of course, you know, we all know looking someone in the eye can certainly draw them in and create attention and that kind of thing. But you know, like instinctively, you have to listen and know when if you if you don't end up looking at them and acknowledging them, then that then you look like a soft target. So it's this is this could be it, it's 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 not fun, but it's, it's like, you just have to like be in that still place in yourself and know like, okay, not looking at this dude. Okay, wait, he won't, he won't, he's targeting, he's coming this way. Now it's time to look and maybe it's time to use my voice. And this is something I I think also the self-defense industry, we, and I've, I've done this a bunch. It's like, we practice, you know, that big booming, no back off. And that's a great skill to have. And we should like practice that all the time. But another tactic or skill to think about is is the use of modulating your voice, where sometimes like a, hey, what's up? You know, someone's targeting you and you're just like a, hey, what's up kind of thing, kind of neutral, maybe a little bit of edge to it. And then everything be, be from that to like the full blown yell, like, like, how can you um, like modulate your voice and trust that you you can read that moment is one of the big things that that I, I try to convey in my classes. Those are both really powerful tips, and they they have a common theme, which is basically, you know, number one, it depends on the scenario. So we can't give you a prescription that you can just pop out any old time and have it apply. It, it really depends on the scenario you're in. And, you know, there's a scale. There's a scale of, like we talk about the, the scale of violence and force, There's also a scale for your response, you know, that goes all the way from a softer, less confrontational response through a more assertive response, all the way up through the extreme end of maybe preemptive violence. And uh, what you said, just kind of in passing, but I think is really important is you have to trust yourself to be able to read that situation and choose your response 
and then adapt as you're as you're responding. Because of course, whatever you do is going to change that situation a little bit, and you may need another response. And that what you just said about you know you have to trust yourself to be able to read it. I think that's huge. Yeah, because I, I think um, and, and you and I we we had a conversation with someone on on social media recently, and this person was advocating for like being loud and setting boundaries, and it's just like. Yeah, if someone approaches me on the train that I ride and, and just wants money, and if I'm like loud and aggressive, like that's just throwing fuel in the fire, you know, but just more of the like, like, a, hey, what's up? Like, I see you kind of thing is, is like, that is like, that's probably what I use 99% of the time where I feel someone is a potential menace to my well being. It's, it's just like, a, hey, what's up? Like, literally, that's my tone. I look them in the eye and you can't see it because I'm not on video, but I always kind of like toss my chin up like, like a greeting kind of thing. That is like effective for me in my environment in the context of my life. Most of the time I have used a handful of times in my life where someone was coming at me and it is like that big booming voice back the fuck up motherfucker kind of thing. I didn't do it nearly as loud as I did it in real life, right. but yes. And so I, I have done that. And then kind of like, you know, there's this, I only did this once where this one guy was, was, I was walking down the street. It was South by Southwest in Austin. So a lot of people on the street and he was just like walking with me, wouldn't leave me alone. And I kept like trying to shake him at every intersection. And finally I got to this one intersection and this voice inside me was like, Oh my God, if you don't lose him now, like if you cross the street where it's darker, like you're going to have to fight for your life. And so I, I didn't do either of the things I just described. I just turned to him and I, w- I was tired, I think is what fueled it. But I was like, look, dude, I'm really tired. But if you come with me, I'm gonna have to beat the fuck out of you. Okay, so why don't you just <laughs> and I said it just like that, like so tired. And I, his the, the look on his face, like he just got really wide eyed. And like all the all the blocks that he was walking with me and I tried to be nice and I tried to shake and wouldn't work. And then just just like this really like tired, bored threat to his safety, like is what worked. And so, you know, I, would like to, you know, hear more from other teachers, like kind of talking about that, how it's, it's context driven. Cause yeah. you know, maybe if I told Adam, it would have worked too, like who knows, but you know, it worked, what worked well. Oh, but I think so. that what you did was so much more sinister, you know, it was like, <laughs> look, dude, I don't really want to have to deal with you, but if I do, you're really going to regret it. <laughs> You know, it's almost like it's no big deal to me, but if you want to take me on, your choice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I guess I didn't think of it that way, but it's just like, I honestly, I was tired. South by Southwest, if you've ever been or any of your listeners, it's exhausting. <laughs> and so I just wanted to go home. But yeah, it's, it's I, I like to tell those kind of three stories and I'm sure there's like tones in between and like, yeah, just trust yourself. And And again, in the Me Too you know, because of me too, like we have to think about these consequences. Like if your boss is coming on to you, you're not going to like scream in the middle of the office, back the fuck up, motherfucker. You know, like that's right. just like, you're not, not my just, real dad. Yeah. yeah that's you know, not I mean, going to work. Could, like that's not some approach I think many would take. <laughs> so, you know, we, and I don't know what the answer is to, to any given scenario, but it's like, it's, it's, it's time to get more creative than to just have like the big blunt, you know, fuck you and I'm going to punch you. It's like there's there's way more going on right. that we've got to acknowledge. And what are some of the uh, street dodges that you teach people? The most popular one, people love this when I teach this, it's called the magic elbow. 
It's called the magic elbow because uh, to me, the elbow has so many uses. It's a weapon, it's a block, and it's how I use, how I teach it in this class. It's a preemptive kind of scenario. So, you know, we spent all this time in asphalt anthropology talking about, um, looking for signs and keeping your eyes up and like having a big bubble. So you're not just looking 10 feet in front of you, but you're, you know, you've got a bigger field of vision, that kind of thing. So, so you could be doing all of that right. And, and, you know, everything you're doing is right. And you can still come around a corner or, you know, suddenly here in LA, you know, you've got someone who's, you know, having the throes of a mental illness or, or drug addiction or, or just whatever uh, scenario and, and boom, they're just suddenly in your space. Like that seriously happens. And so I use the magic elbow where I just kind of bring my hand up behind my head, almost if I'm wearing a ponytail, like I'm adjusting my ponytail or if I'm just scratching the back of my neck. But what's happening is my elbow then is like against my face. And so we in asphalt anthropology, we look at sucker punches and things like that. And so if someone's going to come in and do a throw a sucker punch, your arm is already there. And so you don't have to come up from your waistband to like flinch and block. So this is, and one thing that I love about it and and the students really love about it is it looks really like natural, like, oh, I'm just scratching the back of my neck. It's not, um, you know, kind of walking around hands up, like, you know, Dukes are up ready to throw a punch. It's, it looks very casual, but it's also very effective. And I've, I've had people walk in my direction because we we get some people who want to, kind of just if you're in, in the wrong neighborhood, they'll just throw a punch either for a robbery or just to kind of show this is their territory. And I've literally put my elbow up and they and they just kind of peel off in the other direction. So you can't prove a negative. I don't know what they were actually going to do, but I can tell you what that experience has been like. And I get students frequently reach out and say, I just did the magic elbow. And it's amazing how like space I have now walking down the street. I guess that's the other part of it is, um, you know, people don't like the idea of an elbow coming, coming at their face level. So it's, it's again, that, that preemptive thing, but it's kind of in my style of being like a little bit more subversive and, you know, you're not throwing your hands up looking for a fight, but you know, the block, the potential weapon is there as needed. Yeah. What's really cool about that is it's camouflaged. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really neat. And, and people that have know the magic elbow when we're out walking around, they'll be like, did you just magic elbow that person? And, and I'm like, yeah. And so it's become like a game. I was walking from lunch with a friend of mine and we were downtown and there was this guy, he, we were walking to the train and this guy had like pants on, like his genitalia was practically hanging out, but not quite. And he was in the throes of some kind of meltdown. And like the sidewalk was narrow and we could have done the thing like where you cross the street, all this stuff. But just to be honest with you, like if I did that in, in parts of the neighborhood, I neighborhoods I frequent, I'd be crossing the street all day long. So that's why, you know, you know, certainly cross the street if you have the chance, but the magic elbow, you know, came came up in that situation. And my friend Scott was like, I saw that. (laughs) (laughs) So but it looks natural otherwise, if, if you don't yeah, have to look for yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's great. Well, I want to wrap it up. We've been talking for a little bit more than an hour, I think. And yeah. uh, so I want to ask you great. one last question, Yeah. which is, uh, what do you want to have put on your gravestone or your memorial? Oh, wow. That's amazing. Not anytime soon, but <laughs> right, right, right. eventually. It's, it's still so, so, uh, significant. Um, you know, honestly, 
I, I've, I have thought about like my body after I'm done with it kind of thing. And there's two things I'd, I'd want done is rolled in a blanket and buried on my grandparents' property in Texas or just cremated and scattered. So it's, it's like, there's, I don't, I don't know that I need a headstone. It's more like, I just kind of want to return to the earth and just be a part of it. And, you know, live in the memories of people that love me. I, I don't know that a headstone is a, uh, I don't know. I haven't given it that much thought. It just doesn't feel that important to me. Mm-hmm. Well, that's cool. I'm, I'm, I'm with you on the uh, scattering the ashes part. I'm, although I hadn't really thought about the option of getting buried on my property. That might be kind of cool up in Coyoteville someday. Yeah, yeah. Just bury it deep enough so the coyotes don't. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, is there anything else that you would like to share with our audience? You know, one, one real quick thing, something when um, I was thinking about earlier is the idea of fear when we were talking about this is, you know, I've talked about situations and you've been in situations and, and I, and, and this is kind of a takeaway I want my students to know is just because you're defending yourself or you're, you're talking to somebody, you know, you're saying the what's up or back off or saying the boundary, that doesn't mean you won't feel fear. Like the fear will very likely be there. I, I, I feel fear every time I've been in those situations, but you have to act anyway. So if you're, if you feel like, Oh, I, I, I can't defend myself until I don't feel fear or I, I can't defend myself until I know all the right moves. It's like the fear is there no matter what. Um, I've, I've been in some pretty hairy predicaments. I put myself in some pretty hairy predicaments and, and it's there. It's just kind of part of that, um, that process. So if you think you're going to be fearless, then, then you're not human. So I just want to leave people with that. Yeah, that's a that's a great thought right there. Um, navigating through fear is huge. And I think maybe we should do one of our roundtable episodes on that. Ooh, I love it. So stay tuned, peeps, because that'll be coming in the not-too-distant future. Yeah. All right. I so, can't wait. So tell me about your bingo cards. Oh, my bingo cards. So, um, so I, when we do asphalt anthropology, everybody leaves with a bingo card and what's on the cards are things that we've talked about in class. Um, so it's, it's a way of gamifying, you know, what you've learned and you go sit at a coffee shop or wherever's convenient for you and you look for the things we talked about. And so one of the rows is thinking like a bad guy. So you're looking for people who would be an easy, soft target. So this could be people walking around looking at their phone. Um, and to be honest with you, you don't get the square if you only see one person. You have to see 10 people because one person's way too easy. <laughs> um, so there's that. So there, 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 there's like the row of thinking like a bad guy. There's the idea of um, trying to understand dynamics in, in groups. So when you see a group go by, you know, like look for a couple with, you know, maybe tension between them or identify who's the highest ranked uh, status member in the group. And the point of the bingo is not to be right and to like know for sure. But the point of the bingo card is to just start practicing and getting good at looking at people and picking up what your senses and your intuition are telling you. There's also a row I've added to a more uh, updated version is like, like look for people with curly hair or look for people with, you know, some kind of defining characteristic that gets us better at being able to describe people. So if you ever need to describe someone to a police officer or in a court, you know, women in particular, um, they'll describe what someone was wearing. Well, they're not going to be wearing, they could peel that off and run down the street or they'll be wearing something different in court. 
So the bingo card is all about just practicing, like getting good at, you know, looking at people, seeing people, seeing dynamics, and hopefully in a, in a really fun way that, you know, I love to play this with my husband or other friends and I get competitive and who's going to win. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Is that something that only people who do your class can get or, or can those of us who are a little further away? No, anyone play can bingo? get it. Um, yeah, anyone can get it. So if you go to my website, I'm at metrofinishschool.com. And I, I think this will be in the show notes. But if you go to my website, you can just shoot me a note. I've also got a place to down, you can download them. I've got different editions that I come up with, like for spring and for summer. And I live in a very touristy area. So there's one for travel. So yeah, people can can certainly reach out for that and get that from me. Okay, yeah, we'll definitely put that in the show notes. So people can find you at the website at the metrofinishschool.com and where else? Um, so I prefer Instagram. I'm, I don't, I'm not a big Facebooker, so I know that's like breaking every rule of business, but I'm going to do it anyway. But I really enjoy um, Instagram and you can find me there at Metro Finishing School. And I do try to do it once a week, just uh, at least just some kind of like street dodges and tips on moving through the environment. Got some exciting projects coming up with some friends that we'll be talking about shortly. But, you know, there's also some like fun, you know, street art that I like. It's, you know, my whole kind of life is about travel and exploration. And so you'll see some of that as well. But then kind of woven through that is how to navigate those environments like in a really fun way. Oh, that sounds great. A lot of resources there. Okay, well, I think we've come to the end of our time today. So I just want to say thank you. It has been so much fun to to hear about what you've been up to and what you do in the world and, and some of the stories that you've shared. It's just been great. And I really appreciate you coming on today. Yeah, thank you. This has been a lot of fun. I've been dying to talk to you more one-on-one. So this is a great opportunity. Great. Well, thank you. And I just want to encourage our listeners to get onto Apple Podcasts and subscribe if they have not already done that. So subscribe, give us a rating and a review. And of course, if you love what you're hearing, please share it with your friends and other women that you think would really benefit from hearing the kinds of things that we've been talking about today. All right. Thank you so much. And I will see you next time. Stay safe and be a badass. You've been listening to the Born to be a Badass podcast. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and be sure to share it with your friends. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and a review. Tune in regularly for more exciting insights and wisdom on women, violence, and safety. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.